Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, uh, John Troyer. I'm the director of the Center for Death and Society at the University of Bath, and I will be uh, chairing uh, today's session on end-of-life care and bereavement uh, uh, on end-of-life care and bereavement support amid COVID-19, a new joint uh, venture of talks around COVID-19 with the uh, University's Institute of Policy Sciences, or IPR, and the Center for uh, Death and Society. So thank you for joining us. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to have uh, be joined by uh, several colleagues from CDAS today. So three speakers today. Each will speak for approximately 10 minutes, <clears throat> and then we'll do uh, uh, questions, uh, Q&A at the end. So our three speakers are Dr. Chow Fang, uh, who is a research associate based in CDAS at the University of Bath. His research interests lie in bereavement, aging, end-of-life care, and cross-cultural comparisons. He has been actively involved uh, in a range of collaborative projects about aging and end-of-life care issues across the UK, China, Japan, and Australia. Um, <clears throat> then we'll have Dr. Joe Wilson, who is a research associate in CDAS and a consultant nurse in palliative care at the Royal Free London Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. Her PhD took a mixed methods approach and focused how, on how senior healthcare professionals recognize dying and negotiate uh, decision-making with patients and families. She has co-led uh, writing national guidance on care after death. And then our final speaker today will be Dr. Paula Smith, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of Bath. She is a chartered uh, health psychologist who also has a nursing background and is currently a member of the steering group uh, of the Help the Hospices Care for the Carer Project, a five-year project aimed at highlighting and supporting carers in hospice settings. Um, today, they will be discussing end-of-life care and bereavement support amid COVID-19, like I said, which is the title of it. Uh, before we begin, there are just a few, uh, just a couple of housekeeping notes uh, I want to share with everyone who's joining us. And again, thank you all for joining us uh, from around the world. Uh, I, I very much appreciate it. Um, please note that your cameras and microphones will remain switched off. Uh, if you have a question, please submit your question via the chat function uh, down at the bottom of the screen. If you look at the bottom of your screen, you'll see uh, chat, click on that. Uh, you, uh, we will aim to respond to all the questions toward the end of today's session, or we'll get to as many as we can. Uh, the session is being recorded. So filming and photography is taking place. Uh, subject to no technical difficulties, the session will be available online as a podcast and a video at a later uh, date. So uh, thank you all again uh, for joining us. And I will now uh, kick off today's discussion um, with Dr. Chow Fang. And I'll say very quickly that Chow uh, will be discussing the development of end-of-life care and bereavement support in mainland China during, the, during and post the outbreak uh, and the argument for more context-specific models to fit the unique circumstances in China. So with that, uh, I will hand it over to Chow. Okay, so hello everyone. So today I'm going to talk about end-of-life care and bereavement support in China in the context of COVID-19. And the purpose of today's talk is going to provide a, a brief outline and a quick review to reflect on the impacts of COVID-19 on the two main areas, the end-of-life care and the bringing support in China. 
And in order to develop this kind of relatively in-depth pictures of the situation, situations in China, I'm going to uh, look at three different questions in, in each area. And these three questions are, what was the situation in China before COVID-19? And how has China responded to COVID-19? And what can be learned from these responses at this early stage? So now I just want to move to talk about uh, the general situation of fly care in China before COVID-19. So tra traditionally, the care for the dying in China very much focuses on a very harmonious and peaceful process in which the dying person is supported and surrounded by family members at, at home. And culturally, there is also a sort of uh, resistance to the modern idea of end-life care uh, because the Chinese uh, culture has long emphasize uh, the values of life rather than death. So a lot of people in China, they may find the idea of withdrawing uh, the treatment uh, from themselves and withdrawing the treatment from their loved ones. This kind of idea of end-of-life care can be very distressing and unacceptable to, to them. And at the societal level, there has been delayed development in practice, infrastructures, work, workforce training, and policy making in the, in the area of anti-fly care. Until recently, the anti-fly care has started to, to, receive, to, to receive increasing recognition and inputs, uh, both from the practical professionals as well as in the areas of policy making. So if I had to use one sentence to, part, to summarize the anti-fly care in China before COVID-19, and that would be, uh, so the end-of-life care, end care has been receiving increasing uh, support and attention from the government, from the uh, care professionals, as well as from the wider society, but the quality and quantity of the care remain largely uh, limited. And so, and now I just want to talk about what happened uh, to to end of life in China during COVID-19. And first, I just want to draw on this fantastic paper, which was published on Lancet uh, Global Health last, last month. And it's a qualitative study about care, uh, healthcare workers in China and how they try to uh, support patients in this, uh, in, in this pandemic. I think in relation to the topic of our webinar today, I think there are three main things we can learn from this paper. The first, there has been limited support for uh, emotional, social, and spiritual needs of, of dying patients in this pandemic in China. And in the same time, often the healthcare workers, they, they reported they, they, felt, they felt fully responsible for, for looking after and supporting uh, their patients. I think that's fantastic. And in the same time, it can also indicate uh, the, uh, the autonomy and the preferences of dying patients and their families may not always be addressed and, and, re and, and respected in the context of COVID-19. And in addition to the challenges in, in practice, there have been also other issues in end-of-life care during this pandemic. So first in China, the end-of-life care and palliative care were uh, have been largely absent in the COVID-19 care strategies at the different levels. And I think it really shows that there has been significant social neglect of the importance of end-of-life care in the Chinese society. And this kind of social neglect can also be found in the care for, for existing 
dying patients because, as I, as I said before, uh, there has been increasing input into end-of-life care in China before COVID-19. So, so that means there were an increasing number of dying patients who were able to access end-of-life care. But suddenly, this pandemic uh, uh, this uh, this pandemic pandemic can and a lot of resources uh, have to be uh, have been taken away from them and being reinvested reinvested into the front line of COVID nineteen care and that means uh, a lot of people a lot of dying patients they were able to access and fly care and and during this pandemic they may find uh, the the support they they could reserve has reduced or the support. Uh, or, or the end of life care support for them has been completely stopped, and this uh, and this kind of issue can also be linked to the third point, which is there has been little attention paid to other dying and terminally ill people in China, because in documents. Uh, in the government documents and also in a lot of media reports, uh, a lot of attention has been given to uh, the COVID-19 victims. But we all know that there, there are also many people who are dying because of other reasons. But what kind of challenges they have faced and what kind of support they are, they are needing in this kind of uh, context. So all of this kind of information has been really unclear. I think that's something we really need to look at further uh, and, and try to think about what we can further support the dying patients in, in this kind of circumstances in the near future. And, and now I just want to talk about what we can learn from COVID-19 in terms of the Chinese responses to end-of-life care. So first thing I think we can learn is that this pandemic has once again highlighted the importance and the urgency of developing and promoting a more comprehensive structure of end-of-life care discourses in the Chinese society. And in the same time, I think we have also learned the importance of supporting uh, these dying patients not only in the physical aspect but also in their social, emotional and spiritual aspects of their life. And also it is imp equally important to respect wishes uh, wishes and prefer prefer preferences of dying, pe dying people and their families where possible, especially in this, in, in this context of, of pandemics, often uh, dying patients and families, they are isolated with, with each other. So how we can better support their personal needs can be very important. And also that's something uh, I think uh, in China we, can, we should think about further in the future. And the third point is that uh, this pandemic has, already, has also shown us the potentials of developing some alternative resources to complement the professional care. So as I said before, a lot of resources have been taken away from end-of-life care. So that's why I think in the future, we really need to think about how we can try to further integrate this the resources from different parts of society so that more consistent and more comprehensive uh, uh, support can be provided to uh, dying patients and, and their families in China. So that's, so that's basically the situation about end-of-life care in China during the COVID-19. And now I want to move on to talk about grieving support in China. So basically grieving in China traditionally is very kind of family-centered 
family-centered thing. So people often, they are expected to deal with their grief only with family members, within the family. And in the broader society, loss and grief often are very sensitive topics, topics for people they try to avoid talking about in their everyday life. But in the same time, there also have uh, some, some Western ideas of the psychological intervention and the psychiatrical counseling services, services have also been slowly introduced to China, especially in some big cities. So a lot of, pe so a lot of people say they have tried to draw on some psychological knowledge and frameworks to help them to better understand their grief reactions and try to help themselves to manage their, uh, their reactions. But the thing is that this kind of professional support is not always uh, accessible to many people in China, especially for those who are living in small cities or, live, or living in rural areas. They may not be able to access this kind of professionalized support. And also in the same time, there has been little emphasis on how to better support the support brave people to, to face and deal with their grief in their everyday life. So as a sociologist myself, I always think not everyone, they would develop pathological and pro, pro, prolonged symptoms of grief, and not everyone, they can or they want to uh, access professional support for their grief. And, and, that, and that means the majority of brave people, they would have to face and deal with their grief in their everyday life. But this kind of everyday approach to supporting brave, to supporting brave people has been largely missing in China before, before COVID-19. And the good thing is that there has been some increased support for brave people during this pandemic. So during the outbreak, especially during the lockdown, a lot of grief support advice has been widely shared on the internet. And also one, one, one fantastic handbook has also been published to help people to face different distresses related to, to COVID-19. So that's the handbook which is written in Chinese. And in this book, there is one chapter which is dedicated to helping brave people to better understand their laws and try to, to provide some advice to help them to better cooperate with their distresses. So, so that means there has been some increased support for brave people during the COVID-19, but the lack of a comprehensive brave support structure has, has has been once again amplified because there, there have been quite a lot of media reports about the distressing experiences of brave people in China who, can, who cannot find sufficient support for, for dealing with their grief. And that's why a lot, there has been a lot of individuals and family, families in China who have been left uh, facing the bad deaths of their loved one often alone and always little support. And in the light of this kind of distressing picture of brave uh, people's experiences in China, I think uh, there are a lot of things I, we can really learn from, 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 from these situations. So first, I think in China, we have to admit that there is a huge lack of uh, wide accessible and efficient support resources and mechanisms for brave people to, to draw on to deal with, to deal with their grief and, and loss. And in the same time, there is also a huge lack of uh, resources and guidelines for professionals to better, to better understand 
the needs of brave people. And also, I think we have also, we can also recognize the importance of developing more holistic support to brave people, including not only the professional support, but also the support in social, emotional, and spiritual aspects of these brave people's everyday life. I think in order to develop this kind of more everyday approach to supporting brave people, I think we really, we really need to think further about how we can better use the power of community. And I think this country, UK, has already, already given a very good example to China in terms of this kind of power of community. And as you can see on the screen, that's the picture of uh, Yellow Heart Movement in the UK. And the Yellow Heart Movement was started by a single British family whose grandmother had died, died during, during the COVID-19. And this, they put the Yellow Heart on their window because they wanted to visualize their loss and want to, to more publicly and socially uh, express their grief. And this kind of Yellow Heart has been widely shared by many other Brave families in the UK across 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 this country, and a lot of people find this kind of shared experiences of grieving, and this shared experiences of meaning can be really useful and, and meaningful for them to better face and deal with their grief and and loss. I think that's something can also be explored in China further in the future, so that not only professional resources but also resources from neighborhoods, from friends, from workplace from all different parts of society can be integrated to, to, the, to the brave people so that a more uh, grief literature society and community can be developed so that the brave people and others, they could better understand each other so that the brave people could feel, could feel be, could, could be further supported. So I think that's something very useful and meaningful we can learn from the Chinese responses to COVID-19 in the respect of bravement support. And that's everything from me. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Chao. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and our next speaker then will be uh, Dr. Joe Wilson. And Joe will be talking about um, <clears throat> how NHS hospitalization practices uh, have changed during COVID-19 uh, around facilitating family visitations, the equipment needed for family visits, uh, how visiting and viewing the dying and deceased is uh, severely restricted, the multiple forms of communication technology to be supported between patients, visitors, and the healthcare team, and the legal and ethical implications of those technologies. So uh, over to you, Joe, and thank you very much. So I thought I would start with just a, a, a kind of a glimpse at the context. So, <laughs> Um, those, some of you may have seen the BBC programme, BBC Two, it's on iPlayer still. Uh, the BBC were in hospital when uh, the COVID epidemic started and we hit our surge. Um, and if you were interested, it would give you um, a good synopsis of what life was like in the trust at that time. So I think there is something about seeing the PPE and we're talking about communication here. <laughs> And uh, you can see, even from the PPE, that it's hard work and, um, and actually uh, you have limited non-verbal communication. It's obscured. We get very good with our eyes. Um, and um, I may take questions about other ways to communicate. Um, I'm going to come on to the COVID surge on the next slide, but I, I have to say I'm really 
proud of the trust that I work in. We've worked really hard to care well for those patients and families. And um, they've also surveyed staff. I don't intend to present the results, but the, the, it's a learning trust. And in actual fact, we are really keen to learn what had gone well and what we could do differently. And you can see that you know, staff do feel that there were aspects of patient and family care that went really well. And some of those things were around heartwarming conversations with patients um, and, um, you know, FaceTiming in end of life care. Um, my CEO calls this the kind of the Everest. Um, so these were our, uh, our, this was our trajectory with COVID in the first phase. And I'm going to talk to you about visiting guidelines. So right back at the beginning where it says number one, <coughs> the Association for Palliative Medicine wrote guidelines that said uh, families may be asked to restrict their visiting. And the reason for that is obviously uh, uh, infection prevention and control. Um, and uh, the point two relates to the Coronavirus Act, which meant that the public did not come and get, the bereaved did not get the medical certificate of the cause of death in the hospital and that there was electronic registration of the death and the medical certificate of cause of death got posted to families. <coughs> I suppose what is very significant about that, although it's a really efficient process actually, um, that is that families are deprived actually of another point of contact uh, face to face when they are bereaved um, and, and able to receive comfort from the trust. Um, three is the NHS guidelines um, on the 8th of April, which um, there had been some before that, and I'm going to talk to you about what our trusted, but um, this one uh, clarified the position. So dying patients were allowed one visitor, and, um, and also patients with learning disabilities, mental health issues, um, autism, who would have been distressed by no visitors were permitted visitors. And then right at the end of the screen, the NHS has released other guidance, releasing uh, the, the kind of national ban and restrictions on visiting and saying that it is being uh, uh, delivered in a trust by trust, area by area basis. But early in the early in the surge, we had a really uh, good infection control team and and they were really adamant that dying patients needed to see their families. And so we wrote guidance really early on that we were able to use that facilitated visiting. And we had one family member at a time, um, and, uh, but there were restrictions. And so the, 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 the family member had to be um, not shielding themselves, so weren't vulnerable. They had to be not infective or in, you know, a possibility of incubating the virus themselves. Um, and they also had to be able to tolerate the, the, the protective equipment for the time that it was, it was warranted in, in, in the visiting area. And they also had to be able to follow the guidelines to get home straight away, to be able to wash their clothes and to be able to shower. But we work with Great Ormond Street and so uh, we were able to facilitate visiting for children over the age of 12. Uh, young people over the age of 16 were treated as adults. <coughs> And um, but children under the age of 12 couldn't directly visit. Um, the PPE didn't fit them. Um, I think that remains as we are. So um, at that same time, when the surge was coming in, we were trying to work out the guidelines. We were also 
um, given so many um, resources and advice. It was an overwhelming sea of resources and I've just put a few on there. So Health Education England launched packages of online COVID-19 resources. These things all take time to process. Uh, there were guidelines on how to do phone work. That these were quite useful. And some from the States, which was incredibly useful about questions that uh, families may ask and, and, and really helpful responses to them. And these have been uh, drawn up into an article in the BMJ and made into pictures. Um, but at the time, what you have is a large number of patients to care for, not being able to care for families in the usual way, and trying to take on board all of this advice at the same time. It was a really intense period. And I think for understanding um, about what comes next, in London, we have something called Coordinate My Care. <laughs> it's a web-based system. It's run by the Royal Marsden on behalf of all of London. Um, and it is secure and it means that a patient's care plan can be viewed by London Ambulance Service, those of us in the hospital, um, ED. Patients can write their own care plan and, um, and put it on there. It's not published um, unless their GP or consultant signs it off. Um, but um, for those pe people who want professionals to help them, we write those care plans with them. And I think it's really important to recognise that this was a really important system for understanding what the wishes and preferences were for those patients who were very unwell and being brought into hospital. So one of the first things, apart from caring for patients and apart from caring for families, was to try and distill the best of the national guidance and our colleagues' guidance into things that would work in the trust. And this is just a screenshot of our trust page on COVID and guidelines. And this is the very top section. And I suppose what I feel you, know, you should notice is that they are talking about treatment escalation planning, end of life care, palliation and communication with relatives. Our communication with our patients and our relatives is a really high priority. And so um, this is just a, a snapshot of some of the guidelines, but we wrote guidance for families when they couldn't be present with their family member, <laughs> reassuring them of our care, but the things they could do to physically be present, uh, not physically be present, be emotionally or spiritually present um, when they couldn't be physically present. We wrote visiting guidelines for visiting patients and um, we wrote uh, guidelines for how to use technology, which I will come on to. So I think that right from the very start, we were thinking about how can we take care of all of these patients really, really well. Um, many survive, but for those who died, how could we care for them and their families really well? So what we did was to form a systemic response. We put palliative care in the emergency department to teach every morning about coordinate my care and accessing this so that all the doctors and nurses who were on for those shifts could access CMC and know if the patient had got a care plan and what their wishes and preferences and who their key contacts were. We put patient and family communication into the heart of every clinical guideline. We wrote practical guidance for visiting, including young people over the age of 12. Our charities really helped us with funding iPads, so every ward had an iPad. Um, intensive care had five iPads per wing and the emergency departments had five iPads. And there was a joined up response from the emergency department to the ward, to the bereavement office, um, supported by everyone. So there were ward communicators, so staff who were allocated to wards to help with communication as well as palliative care. And we have instigated a new service, which is we are phoning 
all of our bereaved relatives. It is taking some time um, and I will give you some feedback because it is, it's, it's helpful feedback for us, but I think it's a helpful service for them too. And the reason I've put relatives in red is I think, you know, for uh, those of us who are really interested in thinking about how we serve patients and families well through policy and through research as well as care. You know, we're not really talking about the family or relatives now. We are talking about the key contact. We cannot communicate with every single family member in a way that when families came in and out of the hospitals, you kind of got to meet more than one of the family if they had more than one. And now we have to have a key contact that is identified by the patient. <coughs> Um, there is a legal representation or one of the family um, nominate themselves. Um, so I think it's really important that we're not really de dealing and caring for the family en masse. We are doing this via a key contact. And we have written something that I hope will be published very shortly. But I think what's for those of us who've been reflecting on this, this isn't just about families ringing the ward for an update and it isn't just about us ringing families. And so I think there are different levels of communication and we would do well to pay attention to them um, in all care settings. So for those patients who have capacity and can communicate independently, they've got their phones, they've got their iPads, then we need to just make sure they can do that and they've got Wi-Fi and they've got signal. But for those patients who do not have capacity or equipment and need assistance, then we should be helping them make those social calls <laughs> if, if they want and as they're able. This, this is nothing to do with medicine. This is about social interaction and just being with um, the people who are dearest to you. Then there are the daily updates from the ward. Um, and they, um, I think they stand as they are. They would be a once daily update about how things are going. We would always, always have medically updated for any change in a clinical plan, either um, getting better and discharge or if there was a deterioration. So that has always existed, but it's kind of accommodating that into the scenario of, of the suite of communication. We would always have done family meetings and those family meetings would have been, for example, breaking bad news that someone was dying or a best interest decision making if the patient didn't have capacity about what treatments were and weren't in their best interest, or if they don't have capacity and we're discharging and there was a change in, in place of care. And so now we are having to set up virtual family meetings. Um, at the time we had virtual visiting of the dying for those who couldn't come in. So while I've talked to you about the fact that we really tried hard to facilitate visiting, of course, many of our elderly were shielding and couldn't come in. <coughs> Many were sick themselves and couldn't come in. So one of the things that we were able to do with the iPads is a virtual visit of the dying. And in that place, the, the professional is there to facilitate the visit, but not to take part in the visit so that actually the patient and the, and the, and the person can have time together remotely. Um, that is actually quite demanding, emotionally demanding work. And we need to think about that going forward. There's the daily updates as we always would have done for patients who were dying to let the family know. And then there is the virtual visiting of the deceased or what would be known as viewing. And if the dying family person was not there at the point of death, then viewing of the deceased was restricted. And I personally haven't facilitated any virtual visiting of the deceased, 
but in the north of England it is a service that's offered and um, it takes a lot of care and a lot of preparation and their bereavement service is set up differently but it is something that we need to um, consider and we're continuing to work on and then in all of those levels of communication we need to consider the needs of those with learning disabilities and sensory impairments and those who don't have in, in, you know, IT or technology at home. Um, so, for example, we needed to do a family meeting and, um, and the person at home had hearing impairment. And so we needed to get someone into the home with PPE in order to facilitate that meeting virtually. So, um, we have to think really differently about how we meet the needs, the communication needs of both our patients and those who are dear to them. And then the legal and ethical and infection control principles. So I think, um, as with everything, we just try and agree everything with the patient regarding their wishes and preferences, including photography and videos whilst they have capacity. So it's much easier and much simpler to do if you know what the patient's wishes are. If this isn't possible and they haven't lost and then maybe they've lost capacity then we would do a mental capacity assessment and then with the key contact agree in a best interest manner what they think the patient would have wanted in terms of being photographed or videoed we don't record but and actually not very many relatives record it has to be said but relatives can on the understanding the images cannot be made public and then of course there's rigorous inf uh, infection and cleaning uh, of every device uh, pre and post use. So just briefly to summarize the brief relative call as many of them as I have analyzed so far. So a fifth expressed distress at not being able to be physically present to say goodbye. So that is interesting to me. That's 20% who did express some distress at not being present, but actually that's 80% who didn't express any distress at not being able to be physically present. Um, only 5% still had answered clinical questions, so we were able to deal with those. Three quarters expressed gratefulness for the call and being given time to speak. And I think that that's really interesting. I think they found my takeaway message from this is people want to talk and they want someone to listen to them. And um, that's been an important service. And actually, people have been very creative in how they've managed uh, bereavement with um, you know, Jewish shivers online on via Zoom and, um, you know, uh, uh, funerals where the funeral car has gone past the end of the gate and everyone's been able to stand and wave and there has been ceremony. People have been very um, ingenious. We've dealt with some lost property, but thankfully only 2% had issues with lost property and similarly a very small number had issues with the medical certificate of the cause of death, which we are able to do. And a fifth were guided to bereavement support within the community. And I think that's a really positive health intervention. These were just to voluntary services and quite often spiritually relevant, so our Jewish community particularly. But I need to say the fifth that were guided to bereavement support were not the fifth that expressed distress at not being able to be physically present. They were just a different fifth. So um, it's been a really interesting closing of the circle that I hope is helpful, seems to be helpful for the bereaved, but helpful for us to kind of understand what's been, what they've valued, um, although it hasn't been a survey as such, but we've got some sense of, um, you know, that communication has on the whole been good from the trust. Um, and I think at that point, I am going to close. Thank you.
Great, thank you, Joe. Uh, and our next and final speaker then for today's session will be Dr. Uh, Paula Smith. And Paula will be talking about the long-term uh, psychological slash social effects of not being able to visit your dying relative or attend the funeral on the bereavement uh, and how that, or attend the funeral on the bereavement outcomes for families, uh, particularly in relation to care for older relatives. So thank you, Paula, and over to you. John. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about the way that um, bereavement might be viewed um, in, the long, in the more long-term psychosocial effect and the impact that that might have on, on uh, the future of, of these people who have been bereaved at this particular time. So um, COVID-19 has had an impact on our ability to spend time with the dying and our friends and the vulnerable in our communities. And there have been many changes during the course of this pandemic that have changed the social practices that we have relied on in the past for support and for um, bereavement care as part of that process when somebody is dying and, and to accommodate the loss that people have experienced. But the way that we've changed things may have potential for long-term implications for the individual's expression of their grief and their bereavement and their long-term psychosocial needs. So understanding how best to support people, particularly at this, special, uh, this particularly challenging time, is really important. Um, and as Chow and Joe have really clearly described already, um, there have been many ways which the families and friends have um, had to change their behavior and uh, health and social care, have had to change their, the way that we work with people um, in order to support people in the process of, of dying during this particular period. And because COVID-19 is such a new disease, there's obviously very little and practice in behavior routines might have on bereavement and grief and that, how that's expressed in the longer term, particularly on the psychosocial um, connections. But we can draw on other related literature and possibly around anticipated grief and factors that we know have impacted in the past on particular um, bereavement outcomes following infectious disease outbreaks, for example, to help us to understand and maybe to learn to mitigate some of the long-term implications that this current pandemic might have on people's bereavement and grief experiences. So the question that we really have to face is how to understand these potential long-term implications and how to develop strategies that might help to support the bereaved in the future. And this might involve us rethinking a bit about how we develop um, bereavement support in this new normal post-COVID period that we're hopefully going to move into. So traditionally, palliative end-of-life care has very much focused on facilitating this togetherness and Jo's very clearly described how um, in her trust she actually tried to facilitate that and actually allow that to happen in different ways. So using technology, for example, um, in ways when people couldn't actually be there physically present um, to reassure them about the, the support and the, and the care that their loved ones were, were having, but also to uh, enable themselves to come to terms with this process of the person dying. And indeed, there's a wealth of literature that suggests this sort of pre-bereavement help and support can really make a difference to the way that people experience their loss and their grief and how they come to terms, for want of a better word, with this, uh, with this particular situation and how they can better process this emotionally and socially uh, and more effectively. So these bereavement rituals that we engage in when somebody dies um, are a very important part of that process and a very important part of society's recognition 
of the process of that death and the importance of that person and making sense of, of their life and how um, this has impacted on the community around them. But during COVID-19, we've seen that this has had to change in many different ways. So the way that we, um, social isolation, for example, um, because of disease suppression, social gatherings being reduced, has had a significant impact on the sort of the mental well-being and the traditional coping strategies that individuals might normally rely on following a bereavement. And the way funeral practices and rituals have changed and the fewer people are allowed to be physically present at the, at the funeral or to be able to spend time together remembering a person in face-to-face -face communication and gatherings has changed. And this can actually, again, feel like it's isolating perhaps the family members who are experiencing that bereavement or frustrating them in that they can't um, use the rituals that they perhaps find very comforting or, or would, were more familiar with the way that they would expect to normally um, deal with this particular loss. So they might feel slightly out of step, as it were, with the normal societal and individual expectations of what might happen when somebody dies. And that can create difficulties for their emotional well-being moving forward, their psychosocial understanding of this process and, and can create difficulties for, for, the, for these individuals. So what do the challenges in practice resulting from COVID-19 mean for the individual and society's grief and bereavement? Well, some of the underlying principles of the disease that has resulted in the changes to the pre and post um, experience of COVID during COVID-19 include these kind of very rapidly evolving, very uncertain times, not knowing quite what to expect, not knowing quite where the next um, situation is going to come from. And that can increase people's anxiety and worry. And indeed, there's already literature starting to get people seeing, and particularly younger people might be experiencing around perhaps the future and how they might move forward in, in their lives. And these uncertainties can actually increase people's underlying um, difficulties that they might already have been experiencing perhaps prior to this event happening. And from a perspective of anticipatory grief, um, the worry about who might be affected and how they might be affected can also impact on the way that somebody might experience at particular losses. Coupled with the social isolation of having to stay socially distant from people and not being able to access the support circles that people might normally rely on, um, and potential losses for families and communities can actually increase the difficulties that people might be experiencing um, and that might actually impact on their, their experience of of loss at this particular time. And all these factors we know actually play into, uh, contribute to complicated grief responses, which can be very problematic for, for some people to actually manage and deal with following the loss. And in terms of complicated grief, um, what we're really talking about here is a grief that typically lasts longer and is more destructive to the individual than would normally be expected from a loss of this particular kind. So complicated grief has been particularly related to very traumatic deaths, to where the place of the death might happen, to other demands and pre-existing factors that might be going on at the same time for a particular, in, for a particular individual. So for example, these COVID-19 related deaths might be very unexpected, they might happen very quickly, 
Um, it's certainly happening in a hospital environment generally or very often or in a place where um, people can access, uh, access the individual very easily. So these kinds of very high intensity medical interventions can be very threatening and can be very difficult to understand. So these, all these factors can play into what we would normally see in a complicated grief response perhaps for some individuals. Um, not being able to access the support that you would normally access um, and the worry that they might have about their own concerns. Joe's already mentioned that some people were, were not well enough to be able to come and visit their relatives. Um, so there are all sorts of other factors. It's not a single factor that's actually playing into this particular situation that individuals might be exposed to. And during this pandemic, they have all, all of these factors that we know are very related to complicated grief responses are in play for a lot of people. So there is an increased risk potentially of complicated and prolonged grief reactions for some individuals who might have been exposed to a bereavement and a loss during this particular time. But what we need to think about as well is, as, as Chow mentioned and as Joe has already mentioned as well, that actually everybody's experience is individual to them. So whilst everyone has individually experienced there are numbers of people who have had a similar experience. And for some, that will be a very comforting thing to know that they're not on their own, that there are other people who've had shared experiences, which maybe they can um, talk to other people about and that there will be some understanding of. But for others, anecdotally, there's been talk about some people who kind of resent the, the loss of their individual as, as one of a number of people that are reported uh, in the media every day and in the media briefings that have been going on. So understanding people's experience of this loss is going to be quite complex to unpick and un, um, disentangle from each individual's own reaction. And I think there's some complications there that we need to be conscious of if we are working with people who might be experiencing difficulties following their particular loss at, at this time. And we know that when there's a time of crisis, people will sometimes rely on their normal coping strategies, but sometimes their behaviours will change and we have been forced to change behaviours at this time in terms of our coping strategies. We're not able to meet and have those interactions with our friends and family in the way that we might have done in the past when we were um, dealing with, with a particular death or a loss. So actually managing those differences and, and actually dealing with those, the consequences of those interactions and the changes in those interactions can lead to different responses from individuals in relation to the loss that they might feel that they've experienced or, or the reporting of, of that loss to others. And when the situation has calmed down perhaps and there's um, a chance that people will be able to uh, spend more time thinking about things, that's often a time when people will also start to think about things and reflect on the situation and feel then at that point where they might actually struggle to understand how they might, might be able to say goodbye in a meaningful way to the person that, who has died. And so these kinds of impacts and these kinds of experiences might have a very different uh, effect in the long term as opposed to the immediate effect that um, people might normally expect when somebody dies. And the result of this is that individuals um, could well be described as having been exposed to a very traumatic nature of, of the context of the death. Um, just because of the nature of, of the consequences and the circumstances surrounding the death, um, which might impact on them in the, in the time going forward in their bereavement processes. 
Well, there's been several pieces of work that have come out fairly recently um, as part of rapid reviews and part of um, thinking very clearly about the how COVID-19 might be impacting on bereavement processes. And this particular one by Mayland et al um, is, is very useful, I think, in terms of actually looking very explicitly at what bereavement outcomes might be expected in a time of pandemic. And what's really interesting is that there is very little literature out there about, about, about bereavement following a pandemic. Research mostly from these, um, from these kinds of experiences focus on um, infectious diseases and usually patients who have survived infectious diseases uh, rather than necessarily the bereaved. Although, of course, someone who survived an infectious disease might well be a bereaved person in their own right as well. And so we have to kind of remember that. But what, it, what, these, um, what these reviews actually identify is that there are a number of issues um, related to this kind of loss that is different from a normal everyday kind of bereavement process in that there are a multiplicity of losses. So it's not just the loss of the individual, but it might be loss of security, it might be loss of financial um, security, it might be loss of um, their situation, their circumstances. There's a, a huge degree of uncertainty around the situation, um, which complicates the issues for people going forward. Um, and there's a lack of sometimes a connection to the dying. So not being able to go and visit the dying, not being able to be with the person who is dying um, can actually have a, a significant impact on the individual's experience and their reported experience following these kinds of, of losses. Also, there's been a very big disruption very often in these infectious diseases to the rituals and social norms that I was talking about previously in relation to um, bereavement practices and, and uh, funerals and so on. And these disruptions to social norms can actually negatively impact on the experiences reported because people feel like they've not been able to really properly. Hi everyone, it looks as if we have a bit of, uh, I think we've got some freezing going on right now with uh, Paula's uh, video. Paula, can you still hear us or you still there? Oh, I think you're back can, now. Go yes, ahead, Paula. Sorry. All right. That's okay. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> I think go ahead. And we'll, Lovely we'll, technology. Yeah, that's right. We'll head into the final stretch and go ahead. <laughs> um, anyway, the rapid review um, suggested a few strategies to reduce the risk of complicated grief, uh, including promoting connection to communities, individualized care, opportunities for future memorialization to actually acknowledge and uh, the the life of the person who had died and so on and preparation and planning of post bereavement support is strongly recommended from this particular review and i think that's some of the things that joe has obviously clearly talked about already in relation to what they've been doing in their own in their trust there developing these um contact with the with the, per the bereaved person through the telephone calls and so on and it is that that really important connection that is so vital to actually somebody's understanding and coming to terms with their experience. And so I think we can think about what palliative care has offered. And again, there's been a huge um, flurry of, of literature that's come out from the palliative and end of life care world, which actually has given some expertise and in supporting patients and families and staff around advanced care planning and bereavement support. And there are various, as Joe mentioned already, various uh, sources of resources and support that actually are really important in this process of uh, sharing this expertise and making sure that people who um, need the support and need the, the, uh, 
the advice actually can access those things both in the acute care setting and importantly in the community where many people will be doing most of their grieving and, and their bereavement um, processing. So I think we can talk in terms of conclusions on the expertise that we can learn from palliative and end-of-life care and how we can develop an awareness of the strategies to mitigate the negative impact of this um, experience and, and the impact that it might have on individuals. I think as Chow mentioned earlier, we need to be very careful that we don't over pathologize this because just because somebody's had a loss at this time, it doesn't mean that they're going to have a negative response and a negative reaction to, to their bereavement processes. But I think we need to be more conscious that perhaps the factors are there that might integrate, uh, in, instigate a, a, a higher risk level for an individual. So we need to, be, need to be conscious of that. And we need to think carefully about the different cultural expectations from the, of those affected and how that might impact and play into the kinds of resources that we need to think about offering or, or making available to people so that we don't overgeneralize and that we do actually tailor individually the, the bereavement support that we need in both the acute care setting and in the community. And hopefully that caught up with whatever um, we lost out there on the, the previous part of the talk. Great, thank you, Paula. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. We, it was, we, we, I think we caught all that, and that was that was fine. So, <laughs> Sorry good. about that. <laughs> no, that's right. That's the way things go. All right, very good. Well, we will. Um, uh, so, thanks, thanks to all three of our speakers. Uh, we'll now move into the the Q and A, uh, and uh, with Chow, Joe, and Paula. And so, I would encourage everyone to uh, send in your questions. We already have a couple of uh, two, a uh, couple of questions have come in, um, but we've got, we've got plenty of time for questions um, and a good chunk, which is good. I'd also like just to point out that it, it's just as a, on a, a personal note, it's a real pleasure to chair this session because the last time the four of us were together for an event was in Beijing uh, at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences uh, a year ago today, talking about end of life care. Uh, so ironically enough, we now find ourselves talking about the same thing, but dispersed uh, sort of around the world <laughs> on Zoom, as opposed to in China, uh, which I think looms large for a lot of us. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have everyone uh, back, getting the band back together, I think, as I said, uh, as it were. So um, we, uh, um, thanks again to the three speakers. It was, this is great. And I think a, a reflective reflection of the you know, strong research that's coming out of what's going on. Um, I'll just go into one of the questions we have here right now, uh, which is from uh, Andrea, who's sending a message to us from uh, Brazil, uh, which is about, um, uh, a, 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 it's a question around contamination or, or concerns around the contamination of, of the dead body. So what Andrea, she talked to the, the daughter of a mother whose um, funeral was expedited and put through a very fast uh, funeral uh, funeralization process, I guess we could say, uh, partly because of the concerns that the dead body, um, both pre-existing COVID in the Brazilian context was seen as being a point of contamination, um, but also too specifically because of, of COVID, uh, there were other concerns about the body being uh, uh, like um, a point of contamination, something that would be dangerous. So, so what Andrea's question is, I would like um, to know how this has been happening uh, in their country, specifically speaking of the status of the body. So I guess in this case, both in the UK, um, but also then in, in China, uh, and is the dead body considered a source of contamination? Um, how would this contamination occur through the body or is the body not 
considered contaminating uh, in in the broad general sense of, you know, in the middle of it right now. Um, why Chow, why don't you talk about China and then maybe we'll bounce back to Joe and see what Joe you have to say about that as well. Okay, I think the approach taken by Chinese government or authorities is quite similar to here. I think the body uh, of the COVID-19 victims, they were cremated and then directly removed to kind of de dedicated area for burial. So I think in that case, a lot of brave families, they, they could not say goodbye to their loved ones and also they could even attend the funerals and, and say the last to say the loved one for the, uh, for the last time. And that's why when the lockdown uh, was eased in Wuhan in early April, a lot of uh, British families they went to uh, the, the graveyard to pay the respect to, to their loved ones uh, because they couldn't do it. And also a lot of people they found uh, when the, this kind of process of funerals or, or seeing the loved one in the last moment was missing and they found it was quite difficult to understand their loss and they found it was very distressing to, to, to deal with their grief. So I think from like a disease control perspective, I think the body, the dead bodies of the COVID-19 victims in China was treated quite similar in many other countries. So they were, they were kept away from the public so that, uh, so that the, the virus was, could not be passed on, on to other people. Great, now, and Joe, do you have any comments on that, particularly in the NHS context? Um, so we're guided by Public Health England advice and if the person who's asking wanted to look it's open to the public and it's called the care of the deceased and there's a written document on it. So um, in terms of um, we would use uh, protective equipment to care for the person who died and to lay them out and when you move them they can release air from their lungs so they are considered a risk um, and um, but the, the Public Health England guidance is clear. They don't have to have a body bag, um, but you can, most people do use a body bag. I don't think I've anything more to say. Um, you know, the processes in the UK are as they are and they're managed under guidance. So um, I, it's under Public Health England care of the deceased. Okay, good, great. No, thank you. Uh, and one quick thing I would just add on that, although, <laughs> <laughs> There's always danger when the chair intervenes with this. I would say there's a history, particularly, and this is something I think Paula alluded to, uh, in there not being a lot in the literature on um, care of, of the dead around pandemics, but that I, I would say there is a history of this for cultural reasons, uh, the, the fear of contamination of the dead uh, around HIV AIDS, which was something I was, I was talking about last week that the, what I've called the HIV AIDS corpse was itself this point of contamination. Uh, which was which was built in, in many ways structured more around cultural uh, concepts than actual um, uh, virology, as it were, as it, it turned out down the road. Um, so that, I mean, this is one thing I think we'll have an evolving situation around. All right, next question. Then we have from uh, I believe is one second. I'm scrolling through the questions. Keep sending your questions. Very very good. Uh, we have a question from. Um, um, Stephen or Stefan, is uh, what parts uh, might collective or individual um, services of Thanksgiving, quote unquote, for those who have died play in the post lockdown period, uh, which would just mean sort of, are, is, 
what do you think, what do you all think about in terms of having services uh, for the deceased families uh, after things sort of open up more? Paula, why don't you pick up on that one since you were talking about the grief and bereavement stuff? Yeah, so certainly stuff. I think that is certainly something that's come up in some of the reviews and some of the previous literature about what has been helpful to the bereaved is to actually have some public acknowledgement for their loved one, whether it be an individual small family gathering or whether it be on a larger scale, recognizing the impact of, of the, the event across the nation, as it were. So I think there is something significant number of, ex, of extra deaths than we would have normally expected at this sort of period of time. But that, that acknowledgement of the scale of things is, is quite helpful to, I think, for some people to feel some comfort that actually they're not on their own, that there, there, is, there are other people in and who are remembering this event and remembering those lives very specifically. And I think that's also been brought out in the sort of the media and so on when they particularly um, looked at the number of healthcare professionals who have died and in, you know, whilst doing their work and so on and, and kind of memorialising those in, 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 the, in the literature and in the media that actually kind of brings it to, brings it individual stories, I think, bring this whole event to life because this is about individuals. This is not, I mean, this is a massive scale, but it's about the individual and what people want to be able to remember is, is the individual that they knew that's really important, I think, to them. So some kind of memorialization, I think, is, is really helpful for many people. Is there, Joe, is there anything that you've, you've seen that's gone on from memorialization of, the, of the, all the, the various healthcare workers who've died, which has been, according, I think the last time I checked to the Nursing Notes um, web, website organization, which is keeping track of this, I think it was upwards of 275 uh, on their accounting, which was higher than the government's accounting mm -hmm. uh, of that. I, I don't think that I have heard anything particularly about the memorialization of those care workers. I think that um, it, um, or people have taken a very bad hit emotionally when you lose a colleague, it's absolutely yeah. devastating. Yeah. And um, so I think that there will be individual responses based on what was known about the person and what they would have wanted. And there is also something about respecting the family's grief about that person, that your grief as a colleague is not greater than the grief of a family. It, well, it might be, but you know, there is something about respecting that you are a colleague and not just family. So it will be interesting to see what, what is done uh, professionally. Um, I, I just anecdotally, about families, I think they are being really resourceful and many of them are waiting to celebrate. They've got the ashes and they are going to go somewhere with them and they will celebrate at some point. There will so I feel like we are we aren't yet seeing the memorialization. I think everybody's waiting until it's safe that they can be together. Yeah, I agree. Is there child have families done things like that in China now that things have begun to open up, quote unquote, uh, in China? Yeah, as I said, a lot of families, they went to visit the, the, the graveyard or went to see the ashes of the, their loved ones after the lockdown. And during lockdown, as I said before, a lot of people, they try to kind of to share their loss and, and try to develop this kind of memorialization on the internet. 
And also another thing I think can be particularly useful and helpful for grief people after lockdown is uh, some kind of grief, collective uh, grief, grief, uh, grief activities. So for example, I think this has happened in China and also in Spain. So the, the, the country has had some national um, mourning or memorization for the people who, who died in this pandemic. I think this kind of shared experiences of of, of pain and the shared experiences meaning can be really useful and can be understood as kind of condolence to the brave family. So I think both at the individual level and, and as, as, as a collective level, so some kind of memorialization will be useful, really useful for brave people after lockdown. Right, great, thank you. So we have a, we have a question here from uh, David uh, for Joe, specifically for you. Uh, in the, he says, I would be interested to hear about the timing of bereavement follow-up calls. How long after bereavement are they speaking to the families uh, and how the impact of the calls is being evaluated? Um, so um, there, I think when you set up a bereavement service, you usually, I'd be really interested to know David's background, but you, uh, I think there's an, sort of an agreed time when you would call we, this is a new service. We are just trying to touch base with families because we would have made face-to-face -face contact when they collected the medical certificate of the cause of death. And it's really just giving an opportunity for that. So we're just working our way through. So I can't say, oh, we did, I probably could when I analyze the data that some were done at three weeks and some were done at with six weeks and for a group now, we might be a bit further along and that also will affect the data. But the, the truth is we're not really, um, we aren't really prompting anything. We're just letting families speak. And if there's things that we need to clear up to help them, that's what we're doing. Um, so I haven't got a set answer that we are definitely <coughs> doing this at six weeks or eight weeks. We are just trying to work our way through as we can. And how, and how, do, you, how do you think the impact of the calls is being, I mean, it's hard to say evaluation on this one because it, I mean, everyone, again, as Paula highlighted, everyone is so different. <laughs> I think we would all agree that within, you know, the, if you could talk about the matrix of grief and bereavement, every individual is going to have a different response to that. Um, but how would you even think about trying to evaluate something like that? If that yeah. it, it, so you know I think, I mean? yes. So um, we are looking at themes that have come out. So that if there's anything that we can learn that we can put right in case we have a second phase, then we're keen to learn. I mean, um, I think we are planning on writing a bereavement card that says we will be contacting you. And, and, um, and if you don't want to be contacted, please just you'd be able to let us know. Um, but we will try and make contact. Um, so I think it's really difficult to say they aren't currently expecting the call. It's just really touching base. Um, and if they don't want to speak for long, they don't have to speak. It's absolutely fine. Um, but if they do want an ear, then we're happy to give them an ear. So um, it isn't anything more formal than that yet. And I wouldn't, you know, there are hospices who have bereavement services set up in which people are referred in a particular way. But this is for us because we would have caught up with the family at the time that they were doing the medical certificate of the cause of death and addressed any concerns then. And it's just a chance to do those things. So they're not left with them in bereavement. Yeah, no, I, I've been struck by the fact and I've been thinking quite a bit about, and this, this runs through all three of your presentations about the, the there will be a, a lot of longitudinal work that needs to be done here in terms of, I think, thinking through long-term um, 
uh, well, as, as Paula pointed out, complicated grief. And I think that we could be looking at a, a uh, I don't want to say a new kind of complicated grief because it seems unfair to say that you, uh, but that there's, that the, the historical conditions of what's going on are such that the grieving, you know, grief and bereavement, which is already difficult and complicated, is being made, you know, more complicated and exacerbated by any number of the situations we're, we're involving in, and that, that really, we're, we're, we're really only at the beginning of what's going to be a, a multi-year uh, process, and I, and I, I, I don't honestly see any other way around that, and I think, but I think that's okay, I think that's okay to say, and I think that's okay to admit that way, um, so, um, yeah, and, and I think that would be good that way. Um, uh, oh, uh, just to, uh, very quickly, Joe, David, who's, who's, tr who's chimed in to say that your response uh, was similar to the trust that he works within. Uh, and so um, that, um, that, uh, it, that any kind of evaluation be more informal and sort of thematic. Because the last thing you want to do when you, I think, talk to a family about grief and bereavement is give them a sheet to fill out. Like, did you feel on a scale of one to five? Which I guess is the other thing we run into the risk here of uh, like, you, you know, are we trying to over-evaluate a situation which doesn't escape evaluation, but it's just, it's not a situation we're used to evaluating, not in the West. If, if that makes any sense. And it, it, yeah, I, I think a lot about the, the, the grief and bereavement issues that Paula pointed out, because I think that, that that's going to be, that's going to run through everything that's going on with, with Joe and, and uh, Joe, Lone, Joe highlighted well. clinical. Yeah, go ahead, Paula. I think the challenge will be not to pathologize everything and everybody. Yes. Because yes, it is yeah, a horrible yeah. situation and yes, it's very difficult, right. yeah. but everybody will not need formal right. intervention or right. support from, from, formal services you know right. they will access that support from their family and friends even if it's remotely and distantly in a way that they haven't been wouldn't <laughs> normally have done so I think I think I think there are potential for lots of people to have long-term implications but I don't think we should over pathologize and assume that that's going to happen right. um, but I think the yeah. kindness of just getting a phone call for someone to say how are you doing is actually what really touches people's hearts and, and actually makes a horrible situation feel just a little bit better. And so I think it's those, those, those small actions which I think can make a big difference to an individual's response very often. And they, they are very hard to evaluate because you can't actually sort of, like you're right, you don't want to give somebody a questionnaire to say, watch this. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, so. Yeah, no, thank you, Paula, for, for clarifying my thoughts, which is we, we want to avoid the pathologization, which is, I think, yeah. clear, and I think across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we are, we are uh, right on time, and I think that will wrap up our session now today. Uh, it, unless the speakers have any final comments you'd like to make or final thoughts before we, we go out, um, I would like to, to thank the three of you, uh, uh, Chow, Joe, and Paula, uh, for fantastic presentations. I'd also like to thank uh, Sophie and Amy at the um, Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath uh, for um, coming to CDAS and, and talking to us about setting up a series of seminars around COVID-19, uh, which I think is important. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, all of you at home uh, wherever home might be uh, for joining us uh, today. Um, and um, as I mentioned in the beginning, the session will be available as a podcast and online video uh, via the IPR website uh, soon-ish. And we hope to welcome 
uh, all of you um, to another event soon, either uh, another joint uh, IPR CDAS event and or many of the events the Institute for Policy Research runs on its own and or events will be starting up most likely in the autumn uh, with the Center for Deaf and uh, Society. So again, uh, thank you all. Thank you for joining us and, and uh, thank you to the speakers and everyone have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.